It's the Ford Show. Hello and welcome to The Ford Show. I'm your host, Jason Ford, and I'm really looking forward to this particular show as I delve into the life of one of my favourite comedians who would have turned 100 this November. And rather than me introducing who he is, I thought I'd leave it to the likes of Jay Leno, Johnny Carson, Conan O'Brien, and Ed Sullivan to do it for me. My first guest tonight is a legendary comedian. One of the greatest stands-up of all time. If you've never seen this guy in person, go see him. He is unique, and he's influenced a lot of young comedians. Man who says he can't get no respect. He keeps coming back here. He gets no respect here either. <laughs> it is my great pleasure to welcome a guy who still gets no respect. He's got a new album out called No Respect. The one, the only... Rodney Dangerfield! <laughs> Boy, what a crowd, what a crowd! Now, I tell you, I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape, you know? <laughs> uh, last week I told my wife, a man is like wine, he gets better with age. She locked me in a cellar. <laughs> oh, my wife. Oh, one night she told me she felt romantic. I took her to a drive-in movie. I spent the whole night trying to find out what car she was in. Well, you know, it didn't come easy for Rodney. When he became famous, it was like a comeback. He had tried getting into show business when he was younger, and he, he had a line. To give you an idea how well I was doing when I quit, I was the only one who knew I quit, you know? And he didn't know what he wanted to do uh, when he first got into it, when he was young. Well, I tell you, I don't get a break with nothing. I joined Gamblers Anonymous. They gave me two to one, I don't make it. You know, he had a story about the great Jack Benny stopping into Dangerfields. He didn't go up on stage, but he watched the show and went backstage and told Rodney how much he admired him. And he goes, my image is I'm cheap and I'm always 39. Yours, uh, everyone can relate to being a loser or, uh, you know, not getting respect. And Rodney just loved that, get that compliment from the great Jack Benny. I mean, that's the story of my life. No respect. I don't got no respect at all. You're Yes, the man who gets no respect, Rodney Dangerfield. And for those listening, you might remember Rodney from his appearances on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or from the movie Caddyshack and Back to School, just to name a couple. Actually, I'd like to join you, but I have class tonight. How about tomorrow night? I have class then too. I'll tell you what then, why don't you call me sometime when you have no class? Now, for me, the brilliance of Rodney Dangerfield, apart from his self-deprecation, was his machine gun delivery of jokes. As Jim Carrey once put it, Rodney's biggest problem was that he fired off brilliant one-liners so fast that by the time you've recovered from one joke, you've already missed the next three. Now, Jim Carrey presented Rodney with a Creative Achievement Award at the American Comedy Awards, and he summed up beautifully why he was such a loved comedian. One of the most revealing moments about Rodney, though, occurred when my father came to visit me in Las Vegas. My father was a pretty funny guy, and Rodney treated him wonderfully. My father knew him from The Ed Sullivan Show, and I knew him from Caddyshack. Somehow, he had found a way to appeal to every generation. You've got to admire that. Well, I'm extremely fortunate to be speaking to one of Rodney's closest friends in Harry Basil. Harry is another comedic performer that Rodney took under his wing. He's opened for him and collaborated on a number of movies with Rodney, including Meet Wally Sparks, My Five Wives, Back After Midnight, and he also directed The Fourth Tenor. And he currently runs the Laugh Factory in Las Vegas. Harry came on the Zoom call 
in a bathrobe, which incidentally was one of Rodney's. And the bathrobe was a Rodney trademark, as you'll soon discover. So look, I do hope you enjoy this interview as we celebrate the 100th anniversary of the birth of one of the funniest comedians that's ever lived in Rodney Dangerfield. And I started the interview by asking Harry, what was so unique about Rodney Dangerfield? Well, just the fact that he was just a, a great um, craftsman at a stand-up comedy. He developed this character that was extremely unique and a whole uh, image of uh, material that backed it up. And uh, I think everyone could relate to it because everybody has felt like they were nothing, you know, at one point in their life. And the fact that he was so self-deprecating and, and the jokes were just damn funny. But every, everything about him, the whole package, the popping his eyes, the... The, sw the flop sweat, you know, tugging at his collar and everything like that. He was just one of a kind. Now, was that all part of the act or was it just a sign of nerves? Oh, he just sweat a lot. Yeah, he didn't like to wear many clothes. You know, uh, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm wearing one of Rodney's robes. And the second he got home from a meeting or just being out visiting the doctors, he would take off all his clothes and put one of his robes on. And some of them looked like, you know, you would find them in the trash because the, the material was disintegrated because he wore it and washed it so many times. He just liked that it was comfortable. He would walk around the casino in his bathrobe and slippers and sometimes, you know, when I was working with him, I would go, hey, Rodney, and he wouldn't turn around because he he knew that it's a fan. So I would go, Jack Roy, you know, and then he would stop and he would turn around. Oh, Harry, man, what's going on? You know, he would, it was almost like the whole world was a big locker room. And Jim Carrey had a funny comment about Rodney's robe, how you could see his testicles and it looked like the bottom of a uh, grandfather clock. You know, how you see the two balls, you know, swinging which I thought was funny. Uh, you could buy him something brand new or new outfit. And if it itched or was stiff, he wouldn't wear it. He went for comfort. So he would hang on to an article of clothing for a long time. And uh, he, sw he sweat a lot, you know, and uh, that became part of his image with his caricature, his, the cartoon caricature that they created of him, his logo. And um, the tugging was just him not liking anything constricting. And, you know, now today, if, if any comedian tugs on their collar people know that they're doing Rodney I remember watching an interview with Jay Leno and he spoke about Rodney and how a, a critic from the LA Times who obviously didn't get his act uh, actually panned the show because of the tugging and the padding of the sweat etc I once told Rodney I said Rodney got a the first time I saw Caddyshack you're you know you're just so funny every time you're on screen you're moving and you're just always twitching and I said it was just so funny and he goes man I'm I'm waiting for Chevy Chase to say his fucking line, man. He takes so long because Chevy's cadence was slow. And well, you know, and Rodney's like, Rodney knows his line is next. And he's just kind of moving around, you know, waiting. And it just looked really funny on camera. And, you know, we get to see all that in the pro shop scene. You know, that's Rodney's first scene in the movie Caddyshack. And when he's sitting down at dinner and, you know, causing chaos with the guests, particularly with uh, Judge Smiles' wife. Hey, okay, honey, you must have been something before electricity, okay? Now I know why Tigers eat their young, yeah, you know. Yeah, great, great. I think he, you know, they gave him the script, they gave him this character, and then he would meet with Harold Ramis and go, man, I wrote this joke, what do you think? And, and they were all gems, so he added a lot of his material to that character, which he, which he did. There's very few comedians today 
that can take a joke, an actual joke from a stand-up act and insert it into a movie as dialogue. Uh, Rodney did it, Groucho Marx did it, uh, W.C. Fields, and uh, Billy Crystal uh, was very good at doing that too. You know, when you look at City Slickers or some of his, uh, his movies, uh, it, it's almost like stand-up, some of his lines. You know, Bob Hope, of course, was famous for that as well. Rodney Dangerfield was born Jacob Cohen on the 22nd of November 1921. He was the son of Dorothy Teitelbaum and Philip Cohen, who was a vaudeville performer whose stage name was Phil Roy. For Jacob, it was an unhappy childhood. He got to see his father only twice a year while his mother provided hardly any affection. But young Jacob had a skill in making people laugh. He got his first laugh at the age of five when he asked his mother if he could have some more food. She said, you've had sufficient. I didn't have fish, young Jacob chimed back. Soon comedy would provide the affection that his mother and father couldn't give. Uh, when I was a kid, Halloween, my old man dressed me as a hydra and took me to the dog show. <laughs> what a childhood I had. My whole family were drunks. When I was missing, they put my picture in a bottle of scotch. What a childhood. My uncle's dying wish. He wanted me on his lap. He was in the electric chair. His father was never there. His father was in vaudeville. He was never around. And Rodney used to joke, my father never had time for his kids. He was always gone trying to make more kids. You know, I'm paraphrasing the line. And his mom was not a warm person. He says she never gave him a hug. He doesn't remember ever being hugged. He doesn't remember her ever making breakfast for him, being very critical of him. So there wasn't that warm relationship at home. You know, you hear these kinds of stories a lot with some old uh, performers, Jerry Lewis, who I was a big fan of. His parents were always on the road. They loved him and they were proud of him when he wound up becoming a success, but they were shows biz family. They were always on the road and he was raised by his grandmother, you know, in, in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, he was close to her. So there's always somebody that you find that they were close. Yeah, Rodney had it tough. You know, he had it tough and uh, had a great worth ethics uh, since he was a kid, you know, because they needed the money. So he did a paper route. He worked at a grocery store, delivering groceries, you know, wherever he could to make money. And he always had that mindset all the way up until, you know, owning his own club, financing some of his own movies. He was a very smart guy and very deep. Oh, my mother had morning sickness after I was born. <laughs> what a childhood I had. My mother never breastfed me. She always had a headache. He had a situation where his aunt and his sister, they were going to go to a, like an amusement park or something. And he wanted to go. And they said, uh, well, you got to go wash your hands. Go wash your hands really good and then we'll let you go. And then, you know, they ran. When he went back in the house to wash his hands, they, they left. They ran for the bus and he came outside and he could see them getting on the bus. And he's a little boy out there screaming, I wash my hands. And they just left him there. And it's sad, you know. But that joke is a, is, is a comedic reflection to some stuff that happened to him, you know, in real life. At the age of 19, Jacob Cohen legally changed his name to Jack Roy, remembering that his father's stage name was Fieldroy. But his foray into the world of comedy would be tough going. An example, one night a piano player fell asleep and hit the keys. Jack Roy said, 
even I'm putting the piano player to sleep. Well, you know, it didn't come easy for Rodney. When he became famous, it was like a comeback. He had tried getting into show business when he was younger, and he, he had a line. To give you an idea how well I was doing when I quit, I was the only one who knew I quit. You know, and he didn't know what he wanted to do uh, when he first got into it. When he was young in his 20s, uh, he did impressions, he sang, he used props. He didn't find his comedic voice. You're a great crowd, really a great crowd. And I don't know what to say, really. This is the first time I ever got this far. <laughs> but I'll be back here again next winter. Overheard the boss talking before the show. He said it'll be a cold day before I play this guy again, you know? Oh, it... it you know, I'm sure he had nights where he thought he was doing good, but it wasn't getting him anywhere. He wasn't getting booked, you know, and making money. He would, like I said, work as a singing waiter and then maybe get up and try to incorporate jokes. Um, he would try to get opening act dates. There were little nightclubs around the city. There weren't comedy clubs like there are today. You know, there's a lot of comedy clubs in New York and in LA and in Vegas and any city there's a ton of comedy clubs but they were nightclubs back in the day and they would have a music act maybe a comedian that went on before them or maybe it was a strip club and they would have a comic going before them uh it, it was tough he he wasn't really making it and that's why he gave up and had to uh, uh get a real job and then he met his wife Joyce and she was a singer and she knew what it was like to, you know, uh, to try to make it, you know, in show business. And when they started a family and it really wasn't going that well for Rodney, um, she said, you have to find a, a real job. And he wound up becoming a Tin Man. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie Tin Men with uh, Richard Dreyfuss and uh, Danny DeVito. It's kind of like that, you know, he's selling aluminum siding, which they put on houses on the East Coast, uh, and it was like weatherproofing your homes and stuff like that. And some of the uh, tin men back in the day had an unreputable uh, reputation because the way they would try to get sales. Anyway, so he was in that business. He had his own company, and he was very successful at it. But all the while, he was writing jokes and writing jokes with his friend uh, Joe Ansis, and uh, he would go to uh, Hanson's Drugstore, where, where all the working comedians would hang out, and he would sell jokes, and he was a great joke writer, but he yearned to be back on stage. And while the yearning to return to the stage grew stronger, his relationship with his wife grew more strained and eventually filed for divorce. So in 1962, at age 40, Jack Roy decided to have another crack at stardom. And my wife, she didn't help either my wife. She was afraid of the dark. She saw me naked. Now she was afraid of the light. <laughs> well, my wife, I never got a break. We made a rule. We only smoke after sex. I got the same pack now since 1975. <laughs> and my wife, she's up to three packs a day. At one point in his life, he decided that's it. I'm, I'm going to do it. And I think he was in his 50s, which you know, it's crazy to go back into show business. You're, you know, it's a young man's uh, game and to have no credits, to go back into it in his 50s and then come up with a, his image uh, with me, nothing goes right. You know, that was the first one. Uh, with me, nothing goes right. Are you kidding? Well, I put on my shirt, a button fell off. I pick up my briefcase, the handle fell off. I'm afraid to go to the bathroom, you know? And he would write jokes along the lines of that. Uh, and then the re respect thing, came along but he had already gotten some tv exposure with the uh, with me nothing goes right but once he came up with the no respect image and started writing jokes for that and the catchphrase and then the suit with the red tie you know which was an accident uh, i'm sure you know the story he did the ed sullivan show 
and he had a black suit, white, white shirt, and he wore a red tie. And then he got booked on the Sullivan show about like two, three weeks later. And he was like, man, what am I going to wear? Ah, fuck it. I'll wear the same thing. So he wore, cause he wasn't into clothes. And then the third time came up, ah, fuck it. I'll wear the same thing. And it became the uniform and he became known for that, you know? And so some of those things were accidental, but he had it tough at the beginning, you know, uh, it didn't work. Uh, and then he wound up getting back into it. So that's what I always tell comedians today. You never know when all of a sudden something could come along, you know, uh, that's why shows like America's Got Talent. I have a couple of friends who are in their 60s and they've been, you know, trying to make it for a long time. They had an OK career and all of a sudden they get on that show and they have TV credit and and they could all of a sudden draw and sell tickets, you know, and they have a whole new life. I doubt they'll ever be become as famous as Rodney, you know, I mean, in his 50s to become a superstar and a movie star and HBO specials. And that's like unheard of. So where did the Rodney Dangerfield character come from? He had a he had a friend named Joey Ross, who was a famous comedian and actor. He was in a couple of Walt Disney movies and in uh, Car 54, Where Are You? And he was a personality and he had this character he would do on stage. Ooh, ooh, ooh. And, uh, he wasn't really a great stand-up, but he was a personality. And a lot of times they would go to a nightclub and Joey Ross would get introduced because he was a celebrity. Ladies and gentlemen from Car 54, where are you? Joey Ross, let's see if we can get him to come up and say hi. And he'd go up and he'd do a few bits. And then he would introduce Rodney. He'd say, hey, a friend of mine, uh, Jack Roy, he, he does some jokes on the side let's see if we can get him up, come up here and do some jokes. And Rodney would go up and he'd kill, he'd do some jokes and they were great jokes. And sometimes the club owner or manager would say, Hey, you want to, you want a gig here next week? I'll, I'll, I'll hire you to, to do this or do that. Rodney would go and hang out with Joey Ross and do this and, and try to get stage time. But Rodney would say to Joey Ross, man, do you have to say I do it part-time? Can't you just say I'm a comedian, you know? Because uh, Roddy was, you know, selling paint supplies and, and aluminum siding. But uh, when he went back into the clubs, he didn't want anyone to know it was Jack Roy. So he said to a club owner, um, make up a name. Just don't bring me up as Jack Roy. I'm embarrassed, you know, because he gave up, you know, like maybe 15 years, 10 years earlier. So he came up with the club. Uh, uh, MC came up with the name Rodney Nanderfield. And then the next night, Rodney came back again and he said, ah, man, bring me up that name you did, you know, the other night. So that wound up sticking, you know, and that was like his stage name. And then he started writing more jokes, self-deprecating jokes. Um, and if you look at some of the video, I think there's video on um, Rodney.com of him on the Ed Sullivan show. His cadence was, his delivery was a lot slower. You know, my problem is, I don't get any respect, no respect. And then after a while, you know, the, 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 he, he sped it up. My I don't get no respect, no respect at all. Are you kidding? And I want to become a little quicker, man. And I think it's because the, the, the time that he had on these talk shows, they'd say, oh, you got four minutes. So he had to squeeze in these jokes and, and it wound up becoming a lot quicker. So he could do the tonight show and, and, and squeeze in like 30 jokes you know, in a, in a five minute uh, set, you know, which is just amazing, you know, and they were all boom, 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 killers. And he would always go to the clubs 
and work them out at a club, you know, the improv in New York, and then eventually Dangerfields out in LA, the improv, the Laugh Factory, the comedy store, he would work on it in front of a live audience, and which a lot of young comedians do today. But some of the old school guys, they didn't do it, like Rickles and Carlin, and, and they would just, uh, you know, go and do it on TV or do it on panel. Rodney would go stand in that center spot and do it straight to the camera. And from what I gather, he was doing his TV stuff like the Ed Sullivan Show and still selling aluminum siding on the side. And I understand there's a great little story about you know him selling siding and seeing himself on TV at a client's place. Oh yeah, there's a famous story. There's a famous story where he had he had already done the t- uh, the Ed Sullivan Show and it was going to air, and he was closing a deal at someone's house in New Jersey, and he kept looking at his watch, and you know they're they're like, you know, what's going on? Is it? Are we keeping you from something? And he's looking at his watch. He's going, hey, uh, do you got a TV I could borrow for a minute, right? And uh, they go, yeah. And he turns on the TV and there he is, ladies and gentlemen, Ronnie Dangerfield. And he's watching himself and he kills. And he's like, okay, man, thank you. Uh, We'll send the contracts over tomorrow. They're like, holy shit, we just saw him on TV. And they're like, uh, to his assistant, is Mr. Roy in show business? Oh, no, he just does that on the side. You know, but that's a that's a great story. Now, in terms of Rodney's popularity, it would be the Johnny Carson show where he really made made a name for himself on a national level. And I mean, I think Carson pulled in something like thirty million viewers a night or something like that. Uh, but from what I've read, um, Rodney couldn't get booked on Carson initially. Yeah, he he had done like Merv Griffin and Michael Douglas and the. Uh, which were all good shows, but Tonight Show was the premier show to be on. And he had this manager that he hired and the guy wasn't really like a show business person. Rodney met him, I get at a club somewhere and he was like, uh, Rodney was booked in the Catskills and he used to like to drink when, when the show was over, but he didn't want to do that drive all the way back to the city. So he met this guy and said, hey man, are you a good driver? And he goes, yeah, never had a ticket, never had a ticket. He goes, do you drink? And I goes, no, I don't drink. And he goes, you want to be my manager? So Rodney made him his manager. Rodney liked to drive. So he would drive up to the gig, you know, and then he would do the gig, kill, hang, have a meal, drink, and then be drunk and then kind of sleep in the car when this guy drove him home. So it's not like this guy was going to really further his career. Well, one night, and Rodney was trying to get on Tonight Show. It was just kind of tough to get them to look at his stuff. And one night, Johnny Carson does a bit. And Rodney's like, man, that's my fucking bit. He's doing my joke. And uh, the manager took it on himself to write a letter to The Tonight Show and said, you won't book Rodney Dangerfield, but you'll do his material. You did one of his jokes last week, right? So Johnny read the letter on the air, said this comedian, Rodney Dangerfield, said I took one of his jokes and he repeated the joke but he did it with no comedic inflection at all. So it didn't seem like it was that funny. And he made a comment like, if this is his best joke, then he's in trouble, right? So Rodney was embarrassed, humiliated, and uh, wrote a letter to Johnny apologizing, wrote a funny letter, then wrote a serious letter and uh, never heard back from him. And then somebody from The Tonight Show saw Rodney at a club one night, kill, and said, oh, I'm the booker on The Tonight Show. I want to book you you know, give you a spot on the tonight show. And Roddy's like, Johnny doesn't like me, man. And he goes, what are you talking about? Well, we had this thing that happened between us. I don't, I don't think he'll forgive. 
And the guy goes, no, he'll definitely be, you're great. We're definitely going to have you on the Tonight Show. And then the guy calls Rodney back and says, you're right. He, he didn't forget, you know, he won't let you be on. So Rodney was depressed. And uh, I think Rodney was playing like the Copa Cabana, one of those like New York nightclubs. And he had done his, the first show and he was outside smoking a cigarette. And Johnny Carson pulls up in a limo with an entourage and they want to get in to see the show. Uh, I think there was a music act and uh, Rodney's show was already over. This was the second show. And the bouncer is like, well, we're sold out. Sorry. And Rodney's like, are you crazy? This is fucking Johnny Carson, man. The, Johnny, come, come with me. Come with me. And he takes him in the basement, almost like that scene in Goodfellas when they went through the kitchen and everything like that, takes him into the showroom, goes up to the maitre d', Johnny Carson's here, you know? And the bouncer was, oh, of course, Mr. Carson, you know, they got a table and everything and they're pulling up the chairs. Rodney's holding out a chair for some of his guests. And as Johnny sits down, Rodney leans down and says, Johnny, I'm sorry, I was wrong, man, I was wrong. And a week later, he was on The Tonight Show. But it's always a pleasure to be here. Right. I mean, people are nice, so you treat me right, you know? Right, I did another talk show, I got no respect at all. Mm. I mean, it was my turn to sit down, I wouldn't move over. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my drinking's bad, Johnny, I it's tell you, it's good uh, no good. good. I gotta watch my health, that's what's important, health, Johnny, health. health. everything. Health, I mean, I'm getting old, I'm not a kid anymore, I know I'm getting old. In Vegas, I played a slot machine, three prunes came up. <laughs> Johnny loved him. He wanted to be in one of his favorite acts. Johnny did it 70. I mean, Rodney did it 70 times from that point. I guess it was in the 70s, late 70s. And Rodney didn't do it for 10 years. He was mad at Johnny for some reason. And the last 10 years of Rodney, of Johnny's tenure, uh, Rodney didn't do it. Ma imagine how many more times he would have been on. I mean, he would have done at least over a hundred, you know, it would have been over a hundred, you know, uh, but 70 was pretty amazing. You know, they would just call him and go, hey, can you do it? And he would work on new material and uh, he would do two sets. He would do his stand-up set. And then when he sat on panel, he would do material on panel too. So it was almost like two uh, stand-up sets. I did get to see him do it his last time, which was, um, we were doing publicity for the movie Ladybugs in 91 and, or 92, it came out in 92. And it was like, I think it was like Johnny's last second to last week that Rodney was on. And we had just come from Sam Kennison's uh, memorial. And I had never seen Rodney do the Tonight Show live before. And it was just so exciting to see him, you know, because Rodney was getting a little older and, you know, shuffling around, you know, backstage and his shoulders were slumped. But the second the music would come on and the lights were on, it was like, you know, okay, you know, Johnny, it's tough, man. You know, it's tough. And man, it was just like, I mean, they hadn't done it together in 10 years and the chemistry was there again. And it was just so magical to see him do it. And he had all this material prepared and Johnny goes, so you got a movie uh, coming out, huh? Not yet. <laughs> Ah, uh, you know how it is, Johnny. Yeah. Get older, it's rough, rough. Yeah. Rough. You kidding? I'm into the golden years now. Oh, really? <laughs> the golden years. That means you go to the bathroom five times a night. That's the golden years. <laughs> <laughs> when your toes outnumber your teeth, that's the golden years. <laughs> when the daily double is prune juice and an enema, that's the golden years. I mean, apart from the success that he had with The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and a lot of his other stand-up gigs, um, Around this time, he also opened up his own comedy club called Dangerfields. 
Well, he opened this club in the 60s, and you guys can see it in the movie The Joker. There's a scene where the Joker goes to a comedy club and bombs on stage. That's Dangerfields. And that's exactly how it looks, with the exception of the background. They called it some name of some club. But he opened it in the 60s. He wanted to stay in town. Uh, he was already Rodney Dangerfield. His wife was ill, or maybe even passed away by this point, his first wife. So he had his two kids who were younger than teenagers. And uh, he wanted to stick around and not go on the road. So part of him opening this club was to make a living performing at this club in town, you know, like the way Ricky Ricardo had the club Babalu and I Love Lucy and go perform at his club and uh, not have to go on the road. And uh, it was very successful. There were a lot of great pictures on the wall. And if you go to like dangerfields.com, you could see some of the photos of Rodney with famous people, you know, Bill Murray, the cast of Caddyshack, you know, other comedians, Robert Klein. And then there's a photo of him and Elvis. And it's an amazing photo. Elvis is at his most beautiful Las Vegas jumpsuit, Elvis. He's not heavy. It almost looks like fake Elvis. And Rodney's really young and he's shaking hands with him. And I think back in the day when Rodney was opening the club, he went around and got pictures with famous people when he was performing in the same town as them so he could put on the wall. And supposedly that photo gets stolen all the time. They would frame it, put it up in an 8 by 10 and it kept getting stolen. It was Rodney Dangerfield's success on The Tonight Show that opened the door to a new career as a movie star. At nearly age 60, he was cast as the obnoxious developer Al Chervik in the movie Caddyshack a role the producers had considered Don Rickles for. Yeah, Rickles was great. And, you know, his whole thing was uh, Mr. Warmth uh, and an insult guy. Rodney's stuff was more self-deprecating, but Rodney was more lovable. You know what I mean? Like you, you, when you saw Rodney, you, you could take that guy and stick him in a story. You know what I mean? And you're going to feel sorry for him and you're going to love him. And when he makes fun of somebody like you two should get a room, you two should get a warehouse. It's not mean-spirited. So, yeah, it would have been different. It would have been a completely different character. Hey, kid, I'm Al Chervik. I'm playing with Drew Scott today. This is my guest, Mr. Wang. No offense. Oh, I can give me have a half of those, those Vulcan D10s and set my friend up here with the whole schmear. You know, clubs, bags, shoes, gloves, shirt, pants. Hey, orange balls. I'll have a box of those. Give me a box of those naked lady tees and give me two of those. Give me six of those. Oh, this is the worst-looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I'll bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? Oh, it looks good on you, though. Yeah, I mean, you hear Harold Ramis tell stories, <clears throat> and some of the cast members tell stories, because it was basically Rodney's second movie. He had a small part in a little independent film called The Projectionist, where he played a uh, kind of an asshole movie theater manager. And it's kind of cool to see some of the clips. Chuck McCann is the star of the movie. But Caddyshack was his first mainstream movie, and he was not camera savvy. You know, he thought he was dying because nobody was laughing. And they're going, Rodney, we can't laugh or you'll, we'll screw up the take. Now, in, in movies, you know, a lot of times people hold in their laughter. And the second you say cut, the whole crew just cracks up laughing. In all comedies today, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes you'll hear like a director, Gary David Goldberg, uh, producer of Family Ties, used to be famous for laughing. But, you know, when you're doing a sitcom, you're allowed to laugh, but you would hear his booming laughter. So Rodney didn't know about that. He was very impatient. So the movie took a long time. He had to give up some Vegas dates to, to do the movie. And, you know, he was making just a little bit above scale. So it was, oh man, I fucking lost movie doing Caddyshack, you know, like 
had all these gigs I had to cancel. I said, yeah, but Rodney, you became a superstar. Your money went up, you know, uh, so much after that. Yeah, I guess so. You know what I mean? But uh, I guess he, uh, he and Chevy and Bill Murray wound up stealing the movie. And, you know, it was supposed to be the young actors, uh, you know, all the young caddies. It was their story. But, you know, the, the, the veteran characters, the ones that walked away with the movie, you know, everybody loves Chevy and Rodney and Bill Murray and Ted Knight. Their lines are so quotable. I, I used to say to my kids, you'll get nothing and like it, you know, because of uh, Judge uh, Smells' line to his nephew. Um, it, yeah, you know, it was Rodney's idea to do the sequel. And um, Back to School was a huge hit. And Alan Metter, who directed Back to School, was attached to direct Caddyshack 2. And they gave Rodney the script. They wrote the script. They gave Rodney the script. And he thought it was awful. You know, he was like, man, this is terrible. You got to get Harold. Pay Harold Ramis. Bring him back to write the script. But they didn't want it. They just wanted to green light the movie and make money, you know. And they said no. And uh, Harold would have been like a million dollars or something to come in and write the script. And uh, that's what Rodney did on uh, Back to School. You know, it's funny. I wasn't even working with Rodney, but I had read an early draft of Back to School. And Rodney was kind of a, the son was a jerk and he didn't have that loving relationship. The son was almost as much of a pain in the ass as the ex-wife, right? And uh, so Harold was the one who said, make him rich, you know, like in Caddyshack. Wouldn't that be great to go back to school and have all this money? So that was Harold's input. And then, of course, he wrote some scenes, too. So he got paid a lot of money for that. And then Rodney wanted him to uh, punch up Caddyshack, too. And they wouldn't do it. So he walked. Rodney said, well, then I'm not doing it. You know, I have script approval. I'm not doing it. And Alan Metter was upset. The studio was upset. Alan Metter tried calling Rodney. He goes, man, I'm not doing it. Fuck it. I'm not. When Rodney had his mind made up, that was it. You know, he wasn't going to do it. And then Alan Metter called Rodney's daughter, Melanie, and said, look, if your father doesn't do this movie, he's finished. His career is over. Rodney went through the fucking, you know, fucking call my daughter, man. What the fuck is that? You know, it's like in Tony Soprano when somebody went and did something to Meadow and then Tony went and I think bash the guy's face against the curb. You just don't fucking do that. And that was it. They could have thrown all the money in the world at Rodney. He, he wouldn't have done it. And as horrible as Caddyshack 2 was, if Rodney wasn't it, you do know that it would have been better. You know what I mean? Or at least Rodney's scenes would have been better, you know, but it was just so stupid and silly, you know. Now, Caddyshack was followed by Easy Money and the smash hit Back to School, exposing Rodney to a new generation of different fans who grew up watching him in the 60s and 70s. Now, it was around this time, the early 80s, that you and Rodney crossed paths for the first time. What was your first encounter like? He was getting out of a limo and he was buttoning up his pants. And I think he was a little, because he had this big beer belly, you know? Uh, well, not really a beer belly, but just this basketball of a belly. And whenever he was in a car or a limo, he would unbutton his pants and just like be relaxed. And then he would go to get out of the car and he had to like hold up his pants and button up his pants. He used to joke that whenever he got out of a limo with his wife, Joan, who was really beautiful, you know, she would step out first and then he would get out buttoning up his pants. And he goes, man, they were probably thinking what's going on here. You know, <laughs> like, but uh, he was like, Hey man, how you doing? Okay. I'm going to do a spot, you know? And I was a, I was a doorman. But it was just like a thrill to see him. You know, I was just such a huge fan. I uh, Before I moved out to Los Angeles, I worked at a country club. 
and uh, I was a waiter at a country club and Caddyshack had just come out and all of the staff and all of the members of the country club, we just loved that movie. It was just like, we were like, oh my God, this is us, you know? And uh, so that's the first time, the first encounter. And then um, a couple of times I followed him, you know, when he came up and did a guest spot, but he had not seen my act, you know? Uh, so uh, we really didn't get to know each other. If I started comedy in 83, I think it was about a year before he was aware of who I was because I did the, the uh, HBO special in 84. But it was always just seeing him come in as this big star and going up on stage and then leaving right afterwards. Uh, back in the day uh, at the comedy store, it's like, you know, you're on the lineup. You, you know, there's a number of scheduled comedians that are on the lineup. It could be myself, Louis Anderson, Kennison would be on super late. Gary Shandling may be on the schedule, Bob Saget, you know, maybe Gary was getting some notoriety from being on The Tonight Show and stuff like that, but he wasn't a household name. And then all of a sudden, Robin's going up, Robin Williams and Richard Pryor's going up and Rodney's going up. Those were the three big superstars that would just pop in on any given week and go up and just thrill the audience. It was just wild, you know? And Rodney always got the biggest applause. And what was, what was your dream and path at the time? We have a thing in, in, in America called the class clown. I don't know if you had that in high school. You know, the, that's the kid that always made everyone laugh and got in trouble. So I always had a funny bone in me. And then I moved out to L.A. in uh, the early 80s to become an actor and never even thought about doing stand-up because I thought stand-up comedy was just what I saw on The Tonight Show, monologists, you know, uh, going up and talking about themselves and telling stories. And then one night when I went to the comedy store in Hollywood on Sunset Boulevard, I saw comedians doing things other than uh, straight uh, monologue. I saw impressionists, I saw Jim Carrey, and he was using music and props and Andrew Dice Clay, the same thing, he had a character. So they were very inspiring to me. And uh, I went back a couple of weeks later and worked on this routine where I spoofed movies and uh, cut in soundtracks and stuff like that and did impressions. I think Scarface was out. So, you know, say hello to my little friend, you fucking cockroach. And whatever the movie was, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'll be back, you know, with the Terminator, you know, uh, I would incorporate those movies. And um, I started getting an agent and getting TV shows and, you know, HBO specials. And eventually Rodney was casting his first HBO special and he saw me, at the uh, comedy store on Sunset Boulevard. And that's what started our relationship, you know, being in that first special, the one that had Sam Kennison, Louis Anderson, Yakov Smirnoff, Bob Saget, Rita Rudner, Bob Nelson. Uh, and Sam really broke out of that. Sam Kennison became like a superstar from that. And then a couple of years after that, he asked me to be in a live show with him and he got to see my full act and uh, asked me to go on the road with him. And then eventually he showed me a treatment and he said, hey man, you ever write a movie before? You'd, you do a lot of spoofing on movies and stuff. And I had just read a book on screenwriting. And so we wrote a script together, uh, which uh, was originally called The Serenade Cafe. And then it wound up becoming The Fourth Tenor, which is, was his second to last movie. And that was a, um, a pet project of his that he wanted to make for like, 12 years and uh we finally got to make it when he was like 80 
80 years old, I think, or 81 years old. And it was a love story. Uh, and he was really adorable. And, and it was my first movie that I got to direct. And I recall a story you tell about Jim and yourself after a, a night of performing at the Dunes. Yeah, you know, it was pretty wild. And, you know, Jim was opening for Rodney then, okay? And I remember when I started doing comedy and, and making a little noise before I had met Rodney, one time driving past the Universal Amphitheater and looking up and seeing Rodney Dangerfield and Jim Carrey. And I was like, oh, oh man, I would love to open for Rodney Dangerfield. That would be so cool. Little did I know that I was going to wind up being super close with him and work with him for 20 years. So that week that we opened at the Dunes, um, I was the headliner. Andrew Dice Clay was on the show, um, Paul Rodriguez. And Jim did the first two nights with us. And then he was opening for Rodney, you know, at the uh, Caesars Palace. So here we are walking down the street. We were drunk. My name is on the marquee at the Dunes. And Jim's name is on the marquee at Caesars Palace. And we were just like, you know, riding high and uh, just just excited to be in Vegas and up really late and just not knowing where our lives were going to go or where our careers were going to go. And then like a year later, both of us were in the movie Peggy Sue Got Married together. And I haven't seen Jim since Rodney's uh, funeral, but, um, you know, he's an amazing talent and a big fan. And it wasn't just Rodney you got to open for you. I mean, you opened for a number of big name musical acts, but the most interesting incident occurred with Julio Iglesias. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, when you start becoming a headliner and, and an agency like William Morris, you know, takes you on as a client, they go, hey, we're going to send you on the road with this big client of ours, you know. And I think it was William Morris that signed me and they wanted to put me on tour with Julio Iglesias. And my mom was a huge fan and uh, Roseanne Barr had just done a whole tour with him and the money could be pretty good, you know. Julio has an older crowd and a very Latin speaking crowd. And uh, when I opened for him during rehearsal, I was in Reno, Nevada. And uh, during rehearsal, they're seeing that I have all these props and everything like that. And Julio has no idea who I am or who his opening act is. William Morris packaged me with him, right? So I'm doing my rehearsal. I got my props all over the place and they're going, well, we can't leave all these props on the floor. So they brought me one of those big like laundry bins uh, that you see in a hotel and we threw all the props in there. And then they see that I dump water on my head for flash dance and they're going, well, Julio's going to slip. We can't mop the floor. I said, well, you know what? Put a big piece of carpet down and it'll soak up the water and then you could just strike the carpet off the stage. That's what they did for me in Vegas. All right, well, somebody decided on the crew to tape the carpet down with double stick tape, really wide, you know, theater double stick tape. So I do my act. I go over, okay, I don't kill. I go over, okay. And they rip up the carpet, but the tape stayed on the floor, okay? And no one thinks to go out and rip up the tape. Julio comes out on stage singing to all the girls I love before. And he gets stuck on the tape, his his foot gets stuck on the tape and he stops singing and he looks in the wings and he's like my foot is stuck to the floor right and he rips it up and he continues singing and he keeps stepping on it they don't send anybody out to rip it up he keeps stepping on it by accident one time he literally stepped out of his shoe the fucking shoe stayed on the floor and he stepped out of it and when he found out afterwards that it was because of the opening act and also I did this bit, I spoofed aliens, 
okay? And I did illegal aliens where a, a Mexican burst out of my chest. Like that's how <laughs> I like to be in it. There are aliens coming to a theater near you. So, but I don't do that bit anymore. But between that bit and him getting stuck on the floor, I was fired. And there was supposed to be a big party that night in his uh, dressing room. And they told me at the beginning of the night, oh, it's opening night, there's a big party. So we went backstage and uh, we said, oh yeah, well, I'm Harry Basil, the opening act. Uh, we were invited to come to the party. Oh no, it's not happening, right? They didn't let us, but meanwhile, there's like 30 people going back there and they're telling me that the party's not happening. And then my agent called me in the first thing in the morning and said, you're fired, uh, we're gonna pay you. So. Uh, uh, William Morris wound up having to pay me. I think it was like five grand for the week. And uh, I had to stick around the hotel because I couldn't get a flight until like two days later. And uh, I went to go to the elevator and he, he got on the elevator with a security guard, you know, and uh, there was just a couple of female fans watching him. So uh, he went down an elevator and we got in another elevator with one of his fans, an older woman. And she was like, oh my God, I love him. I saw his, I'm seeing his show every night this week. And my wife, Laura goes, uh, did you see the show last night? She goes, yes. What did you think of the comedian that went on before him? Awful. She goes, awful. <laughs> so that was my Julio Iglesias uh, experience. I mean, one thing that keeps, you know, recurring with Rodney is that, you know, he really championed young comedians, uh, you know, particularly through those HBO specials at his club Dangerfields. And I mean, he even found um, roles for them in his films. I mean, I think of Sam Kinison in Back to School, where he's seen as Professor Turgeson is, you know, for me, one of the best in the movie. Well, you know, maybe maybe it has something to do with him making it so late in life and him yearning. I know that he was depressed about that, you know, that, you know, here his body was shutting down and he was older and he couldn't have enjoyed all that fame uh, younger. He just liked the younger guys. He respected some of his contemporary comedians, but he didn't like them. He would say like, you know, you'd talk about like Buddy Hackett, top prick, man. Okay, top prick. Because maybe they made fun of him or busted his balls or were, were disrespectful of him. But some of these guys were jealous of his success later in life. I mean, they've had, they've had fame from when they were young men, like Don Rickles and Buddy Hackett, but they never had that superstardom that Rodney had opening up a movie, starring in a movie that made $100 million, you know, and getting paid $7 million a picture. And, you know, they never had that. They were supporting actors in movies. There were none of those guys that had that. Even Carlin Pryor had it. Billy Crystal had it. You know, they were superstar movie stars. Not to say that the other comedians I mentioned weren't superstars. They were. I mean, Don Rickles was a legend and, uh, you know, has a... Uh, an amazing body of work to respect. But some of those old school guys, they were kind of resented Rodney having that, that appeal to the young crowd because of all the comedians that he launched. You know, the premier college movies, you know, when you think about the handful of movies that have college in it, Animal House still is popular. There's new generations of people that find it, even though it's a period piece uh, set in the 50s. And Back to School, Billy Madison, old school. There's a handful of them that are premier college comedies and back to school is definitely up there. And there are also some big name movies that Rodney turned down as well. He was sent the Flintstones. They wanted him to be Fred Flintstone at one point. He actually gave me the script to um, analyze this and they wanted him to play the psychiatrist. And uh, 
Roddy didn't see it, you know, him playing that role. And then Mr. Saturday Night, they sent him the script uh, and wanted him to play the part that David Paymer played and was nominated for an Oscar. So that would have been interesting. And then it was cool to see him in uh, Natural Born Killers, man. What a wild, what a wild part, you know? And, you know, not many people know the story, but Oliver Stone was a huge Rodney Dangerfield fan. Okay, there's there's clips out there of him on Jimmy Fallon, you know, before he had the Tonight Show. And they said, what's your favorite? You know, do you like comedies? And he goes, yeah, I love comedies. And he goes, uh, what's your favorite comedy? And he goes, you're going to laugh when I say this, but uh, Ladybugs. <laughs> he goes, what Rodney Dangerfield? He goes, yeah, and Meet Wally Sparks. He goes, I was supposed to direct, you know, Meet Wally Sparks. We had the script with Edward Pressman, uh, who's a big producer. And they sent it to uh, Oliver Stone and Oliver Stone said, this is going to be my first comedy. I'm going to direct this movie. And they had offered Rodney the part uh, in uh, Natural Born Killers. They were shooting in New Mexico. I I still have the budget of of the movie with Oliver Stone's name on it, what I was going to get paid to be a a screenwriter and do a rewrite on the script. I was going, they were going to fly me to New Mexico and put me up during the shooting of... uh, of uh, Natural Born Killers, and I was gonna work on the script, the rewrite with Oliver Stone at night. I was like, fucking pinch me, this is just amazing. And so as the deal is getting finalized, Edward Pressman and Oliver Stone say to Rodney, now look, if Oliver decides not to direct this, he's just gonna stay on as a producer. Rodney goes, what? And he goes, well, sometimes Oliver says he's gonna direct something, has his name attached to it. It helps get interest behind it and a studio behind it. And then if he decides to back out, they'll get a big comedy director and he'll just stay on as producer. Well, man, how the fuck does that make me look? You know what I mean? And I'm like, Ronnie, this is still great. Man, no, man, that's not fucking right, man. What the fuck is that? Again, that's Rodney, that mentality. Fuck it, man, I'll do it myself. I'll finance it myself. And then he wound up financing the film himself. But fucking Oliver Stone was going to be the director of Meet Wally Sparks. And he came to the first screening of it. You know, the movie wasn't finished. It had temporary music. But Oliver loved the, the script so much and, and came, came to see it uh, at a screening that we had in, uh, in Beverly Hills. But um, yeah, that was, that was pretty wild, man. You know, uh, how that, you know, wound up coming about. And it took about four years to finally get the movie made. So he got his money back and he got a theatrical release, but it got released the same day they re- re-released Star Wars in movie theaters. So Star Wars was like number one at 20 million. Jerry Maguire was like at 8 million, number two. And we were number 11 behind Beautician and the Beast with Fran Drescher. But we were on 1,500 screens, you know? And then all the movies that were going to get released, like the, the following three weeks, they were going to re- uh, release Return of the Jedi and uh, Empire Strikes Back. So all the studios pulled their movies. Nobody wanted to go up against Star Wars. This was like in 95, 1995. But they made their money back on video. Meet America's favorite talk show host, Wally Sparks. <laughs> Wally Sparks is an idiot. Wally Sparks? I tell you what I think about Wally Sparks. Wally Sparks is still on TV. Now, folks, you hear about this? You hear that Wally Sparks is actually sleeping in Governor Preston's bedroom. The only problem is Wally says the governor's wife keeps hogging all the covers. <laughs> Guess who's 
back. Just take those old records where he doesn't belong. Well, I tell the guys I had you in my cab. First of all, you never had me. And if you did have me, it wouldn't be in a cab. Rodney Dangerfield is Box. Why do you stay when you all get naked and see who the best man is? No! He's a lover. I don't believe in casual sex. Hey, it won't be casual. I'll keep my tie on. He's a player. What have you got, Wally? I got a straight, but I can't show it to you. Now, Meet Wally Sparks is probably my favourite Rodney Dangerfield movie. How did that come about? I came up with the idea for the movie. I had seen a, a film called The Man Who Came to Dinner with Monty Woolley. And it was a play, a Kaufman Hart play. And it's about a radio, a pompous radio host who is invited uh, to speak at a luncheon, wealthy family in Connecticut. And he really doesn't want to be there. And he, uh, he slips on the steps and gets hurt. And he has to heal at their house. And he winds up taping his show from there and taking over their life, takes over their, their master bedroom, all of his show business friends visit. He's getting gifts every day. And I saw this and I said, oh, wow, this would be a great project for Rodney. So I pitched it to these producers and they said, well, man, you know, you don't really need to, to do the man who came to dinner. No one really remembers it. Uh, you're making him a tabloid talk show host. Uh, just call it something else. It's just the setup. So we wound up calling it Meet Wally Sparks. And then Rodney and I started writing it together. And he had duffel bags of jokes, right? Written on cardboard. If you would get your uh, your shirts dry cleaned and they folded your shirts, uh, they would put a piece of cardboard behind it. And one side of it was brown and the other side was white. And he used to write all of his jokes on that. And he had a whole bunch of them from all of his Tonight Show appearances, even back in the late 70s. So we would always go through his jokes. And... You know, every time we wrote a screenplay, we would we would write original jokes, but we would also look at some old jokes that he maybe did years ago and insert them. And we just inserted so many one-liners from uh, his uh, past Tonight shows, a couple from his actual act. He didn't want to use anything from his actual act because he was afraid if people paid to go see him in Vegas, they'd go, oh, that's the line from that movie. You know, he, he didn't want to use too many that way. Now, one of the highlights of the film was the cameo by the singer Michael Bolton, who played himself in the movie, and uh, he was invited to the governor's mansion to perform, but he told the governor and his wife that he had a sore throat and couldn't, but all that changed when he sees Wally Sparks. Wally Sparks? Hello, Michael, baby, this is wild. How are you? Good to see you. You know, I tell you, though, you know, I went out with this girl last week. She was so ugly. I took her to the beach. They wanted to know what I used for bait. <laughs> and I understand Michael was actually a very, very big Rodney Dangerfield fan. Yes. Rodney was watching The Tonight Show with Jane Leno and saw Michael Bolton do some jokes on panel as him, right? And Rodney was like, oh, man, that's cool, you know? And then the next time Michael Bolton was on, he did more jokes as Rodney. So Rodney called him up, got his number and called him up and said, man, quit doing me, okay? And they wound up becoming friends. And uh, we asked Michael to do a cameo in, uh, in uh, Meet Wally Sparks and he sang, which was pretty cool. Folks, uh, I want to dedicate this song to a great, great state and uh, to a very special friend of mine. The coolest guy I know, Wally Sparks. And then he did another cameo in a movie we did a few years after that called Back by Midnight. But Michael was one of his pallbearers at uh, his um, funeral, uh, along with Jim Carrey, myself, uh, Rob Schneider, Adam Sandler, 
Rodney's son, Brian, um, Bob Saget, and uh, Michael Bolton. Uh, just back to Oliver Stone for a second, and it was interesting casting Rodney in Natural Born Killers. It just seemed like a, a strange fit. Um, I mean, he was cast as Mallory's drunken, piggish father, and but uh, I believe Oliver Stone let him write his own lines. Yeah, and some of those lines, like Rodney said, I'm going to take out your eye and show it to you, to Woody Harrelson. Rodney heard a guy say that at a club once who was getting into a fight, a real tough guy, you know, said, I'm going to fucking take out your eye and show it to you, you know? Holy shit. Uh, yeah, he wrote a lot of those lines, and he was still in pretty good shape then, too. I mean, he had... Juliet Lewis jumping on his back and, you know, he was spinning around with her and they stuck his head in the fish tank and all that. I was really proud of him. Having twice been divorced and feeling unlucky in love, Rodney met Joan Child, who ran a flower shop at Santa Monica Beach, and they were married in 1993. Well, he, met, he married Joyce twice, you know, early, early on. You know, he married her and then I think they got divorced in the 70s. Then he married her again after a year and then divorced her again. But he married Joan, uh, I want to say it was like in the 90s, maybe 93, 94. And uh, jo Joan really kind of kept Rodney going. You know, she, she looked after his health, kept him connected with his fans, with the website, helped him uh, when he went back out on the road again, you know, followed with a script. When Rodney forgot his act one night, he had stage fright. So he had an earwig and she would follow with the script. A lot of nights he never needed any prompting, but he, she was there uh, and uh, really, really helped him a lot. Was very smart in, in, in uh, getting his, his website launched. I think Rodney probably would have died like five years earlier if it wasn't for Joan looking after him. There were a lot of nights he was rushed to the hospital in the middle of the night. And she truly, truly adored him. You know, that was a, a really great love story. And I hope when they make this movie about him someday that there will be that, that element, you know, later in life, how he found love with a younger woman, a hot younger woman. <laughs> and I also believe that Joan provided the inspiration for another one of Rodney's films, My Five Wives. Joan Dangerfield, his wife, who we're, I'm still very close with, she grew up in Utah, Ogden, Utah. And she was um, Mormon in religion, but her ancestors were polygamists. And she would tell stories about polygamy, you know, and how a sister would introduce the husband to their sister. And so there might be two sisters from the same family married to the same guy. And then it was sister wives. And Ronnie just thought, wow, this is wild, man. And this is pre-Big Love, the TV series Big Love. And he thought, wouldn't this be wild for me to write a movie where I wound up becoming a polygamist. So he pitched the idea to me. Joan had told him a bunch of things uh, and a bunch of uh, real stories where someone could leave their wives. Like, let's say you had a farm and you died. You could leave your farm and your five wives to someone. And not only would they get the farm, they would also get the wives. So that's where the story My Five Wives came up with, that Rodney's a rich guy. We thought the backstory to him is that he had been married three times. He vows never to get married again. And then he, we said, oh, let's make him a skier because we found out that there was a ski resort up where we shot the movie in Vancouver. And he's going to buy this property at a land auction and open up a ski resort. Well, it turns out that the guy who died had three wives and he's leaving the church own the property now and Rodney's going to get these wives 
and the property. They're super hot though. We cast the hottest chicks that, that are his wives. So he's like, hey man, I just found religion, you know? And, the, and he winds up marrying them and he can't keep up with them. And uh, in New York City, you know, or in the bakery, I don't know if you, do, you have this down under, but uh, if you go into a bakery to buy bread or a cake, you have to take a little ticket and wait your turn. So we thought it would be funny, like the wives are waiting to have their turn to have sex with him. And there's like that machine on the wall and it blinks number two, number two. It's me, the girl goes, it's me, right? So here he was, I think he was like 79 when we shot that movie up in Vancouver. And uh, it was a lot of fun. The late, great John Panette was in that movie. Jerry Stiller, Molly Shannon, Andrew Dice Clay, John Biner. It was a lot of fun working on that movie. I'm getting older. My age to me, shooting up means the enema bag. I mean old. Well, I told my wife, I want to die in bed. She said, again? You know when you get old, you get certain signs. I walked past a cemetery. Two guys ran after me with shovels. My last birthday cake, I couldn't blow out the candles. The heat drove me back. Oh, you kidding? I saw my picture in a funeral home with a sign coming soon. I mean, you know when you get getting over crying out loud. Well... He was frail, you know, and um, Rodney had always looked really good. I mean, for some reason, like, look at look at William Shatner. You see William Shatner, he's 90 years old. He looks amazing. He's heavy. Sometimes having, you know, tight skin, being a little bit heavier, you look better. You know, when you lose weight, you get real, you got a lot of loose hanging skin and you look frail. Uh, up until Rodney started getting sick at the end and had some surgeries, he always looked pretty damn good. I mean, look at him in, in Ladybugs. He's like 69, 70 years old. He looks fantastic in that. And he even looks pretty good in, in Meet Wally Sparks too, pushing 80. But um, he, he, needed a, he needed a couple of different surgeries. You know, he had blocked arteries from all the years of smoking and uh, unhealthy eating and stuff like that. He also had a block artery in his, in his brain that he had to have surgery on before he had the heart surgery. And look, he could have not had that surgery, but he would have been a walking time bomb. You know what I mean? Uh, he would uh, lose his breath just bending down to tie his shoes. You know, uh, it was really, really tough. And he wanted to live. He wanted to keep working. And I remember going to visit him in the hospital and he was like, hey, man, you know, after my surgery, uh, you think uh, if I put you and maybe two other comics and did Rodney and Friends that people would pay money to come see me still. I said, of course, Rodney. In August 2004, Rodney Dangerfield went in for heart surgery and fell into a coma. He sadly passed away six weeks later at the age of 82. It was tough. You know, it was sad. I remember seeing him and Bob Saget was there and I had a, and I, I was about to go to Romania to shoot a movie called Funny Money with Chevy Chase. And I remember getting this sad feeling. I mean, I had been in the hospital before seeing him before surgery, but this was a real big one. And I remember saying to Bob Saget, walking down the hallway, Bob, I, I have a feeling we're not gonna see him again. He goes, don't say that, man, we'll see him. He'll pull through and the next time I saw him was in a coma. And then the next time after that, uh, you know, he was in a coma when I left to go do the movie. And after about two weeks of shooting the movie, I got the call that, you know, he had passed. So I had flown back for just one day to, uh, and Chevy Chase wanted to fly back too, but he was the star of the film. He couldn't leave. I was just like the producer and writer on the film. So I flew back 
went to the funeral and then flew straight back to Romania. It was sad. There was just an amazing um, amount of celebrities and huge comics that were there. Joan put on the uh, memorial and the party afterwards. And I forgot the name of the, the cemetery. I just visited it October 5th on the anniversary of his death. And uh, it's in Westwood Village. And there's a lot of famous celebs that are buried there. Uh, Marilyn Monroe, uh, Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon, Blake Edwards, uh, Kirk Douglas, a lot, a lot of big stars. And uh, that night, the biggest stars in comedy were there. Jim Carrey, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mara, Larry David, Jay Leno, Bob Saget, George Lopez, Andrew Dice Clay, the producers, David Permit and uh, Albert S. Ruddy, who produced The Godfather, Michael Bolton. It was just amazing. We were upset that, that Johnny Carson wasn't there. We thought for sure Johnny would be there, but he passed away like a week later, or two weeks later. We didn't know that Johnny was ill. Uh, it was sad. And I think the week that Rodney died, I think uh, Janet Lee died the same day. And then the following week, uh, Marlon Brando and uh, Johnny Carson. So it was like we lost some major, major superstars. But it was, uh, it was an amazing uh, memorial. Did he have an off switch at all? I mean, what was Rodney like away from the stage? Well, he was never, he was never on. Like, you know, I mean, he was always kind of deep and stuff like that. Uh, when I would come see him, you know, he would wake up late. You know, he'd stay up to like three in the morning. And then if he woke up at noon, he'd have his coffee and eat something and wait about an hour or so and then have a joint. Uh, but when he used to drink, he could be a little bit more lively and on. But when I started working with him, he was on antidepressants. So he, he didn't, I never really saw him drink booze. You know what I mean? Just pot, you know, and I guess he did some Coke in the early eighties, you know, with Kennison and those guys. And I guess he was kind of wild, you know, sometimes I, when we would go out uh, to like Cafe Roma and there were other comedians there that he liked old school guys you know, and they would try to top each other with lines. He would he would be a little bit more on, a little animated, but he was never on. He was a serious guy. He would say something that would make you, he loved to write. He loved to write scripts and write jokes. Or he would call in the middle of the night and say, hey man, is this funny? And he would tell me a joke that he wrote that day. I mean, he would love to get high and man, I wrote the funniest fucking joke. And he got off on that, you know? Did you and Rodney ever chat about how he saw his career? You know, he just, he would just, you know, say that it's all cock. That was one of his favorite, man, Harry, it's all cock, okay? I'm telling you where it's at. Okay, Rodney, it's all cock. Just life is just, man, it's all fucking bullshit, okay, man? It's all bullshit. He would get deep sometimes and get depressed and all, and but then he would smoke a joint and everything was great. Man, I dig you, baby. I love you. You ever need anything, man? You know, and uh he, he was, when he discovered marijuana, he was 16 years old and he smoked every day uh, up until like his last night in the hospital. He really enjoyed that. He would have loved that pot was legal now everywhere, even though he had a marijuana, uh, you know, marijuana card, but he would have loved to be able to go into a store, you know, like going into uh, like a supermarket to shop for groceries. He would have really enjoyed that, I think. Well, it's interesting you bring up the marijuana use because after the funeral his wife Joan handed out uh, a number of his prized possessions and Jim Carrey has often talked about how he got Rodney's pot pipe. Yeah he got a pot pipe. Bob Saget got this case. Rodney used to use he would sit in his dining room okay and that was like his office so he had a tv in front of him uh, that he could watch tv 
he had all of his pills and a giant cigar box, like a humidor. And like, I have this box here that I keep, you know, I keep like receipts and little, little things in this. This was Jerry Lewis's. I bought this from Jerry Lewis's auction and this was on his desk. So it's pretty cool. But that giant humidor, it had like something like 60 pills in it. Vitamins, pills, Coumadin, uh, antidepressants, everything like that. So he would have that on the table and a white towel, okay? That he could put his elbows on that it wouldn't bruise his, his arms. Because as you get older, sometimes you would bruise very easily, black and blue marks. And he would roll his, uh, it had pot seeds because he would roll his, uh, so he kept his pot in there and his pills. And he gave that to uh, Bob Saget. I got the jacket from Meet Wally Sparks, which I have on display at the uh, Laugh Factory. We have a booth that's dedicated to Rodney. I'll send you a picture of it. In the booth, we have the framed jacket from Meet Wally Sparks. And we have a letter from Steven Spielberg passing on the script. Okay, Rodney had sent it to DreamWorks, which was brand new. And Rodney was in uh, Casper. You know, Spielberg asked him to be in Casper. And Spielberg went down to the set and Rodney was like, hey, man, I got a great comedy script I'd like to send you. And this was before we wound up making it. So this was right after the whole uh, Oliver Stone thing. And uh, Spielberg sent us a really nice reject letter saying how much he enjoyed reading it and all the adventures of Rodney in the governor's mansion. Unfortunately, this is not something for DreamWorks, you know. So I have that in there, too, uh, framed. And finally, how will Rodney Dangerfield be remembered? One of the great stand-ups of all time, one of the great comedy characters ever created, personalities, you know, the, the and, and, and movies being the schlub, you know, the, the downtrodden guy. Um, yeah, just mostly, I think if you, if you were to talk to any famous stand-up comics today, definitely Rodney's in the top five, if not top 10 of greatest stand-ups. I mean, we've got some amazing stand-up comics today, you know, uh, Chris Rock, Chappelle, uh, Bill Burr, great edgy, you know, comedians, um, Seinfeld, some of those legends like Carlin and uh, Pryor, but definitely Rodney's up there in the top five, in my opinion. Well, Harry, thanks so much for your time, and it was great reminiscing about the wonderful career of such a legend, and I think it's only appropriate for Rodney to have the last word with one of my favourite quotes from the movie, Meet Wally Sparks. But just remember, folks, every man has his tale of woe. Unfortunately in life, there's more woe than tale. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that celebration of the 100th anniversary of Rodney Dangerfield's birthday. A massive thanks to Harry Basil, who was very generous with not only his time, but the stories. And I hope it gave everyone a better insight into the great man. Well, that's it for this edition of The Ford Show. I'll see you soon. Until the same time next week, it's good night from... F-O-R-D.